Good morning, everyone. It's a privilege to be able to kick off our Advent series this morning, Starry Nights and Christmas Lights. And I want to start with a story. The man leaves the inn, walking with purpose towards the fields. He's got an easel and some paints tucked under his arm. His bright red hair is poking out from his hat. His gaunt face is filled with purpose. Reaching his destination, he sets up his easel, adjusts his canvas, and begins to paint with intensity, capturing the golden of the fields, the deep blue of the skies. Then they arrive, a gang of bored teenagers looking to have a bit of fun with the foreigner they've heard is just a little crazy. They ogle at the scars where part of his ear is missing, They point and laugh and and call him names. He does his best to ignore them, focusing his attention on his work. He tries to pay no mind to their taunts and remarks. The way he tries to not let all that all the others say about him get to him. Oh, Vincent. He can hear his mom's voice thick with disappointment as he shows up on their doorstep yet again. He's one of those kids who just never seemed to be able to find his way. The one they talked about in lowered voices at family gatherings, whispered about, stayed up late at night worrying about. Oh, Vincent, what were they going to do about Vincent? It seemed everything he tried was a failure. And perhaps he is still a failure. He lives now off the generosity of his younger brother, Theo. He's unable to hold down a job or or sell any of the painting he's creating. And so he uses the money that Theo sends him each month to pay for the room at the inn, for the canvases, for the paints. And every day, he paints. He paints, he paints. It's the one thing that he's found that brings a sense of purpose. Eventually the youths get tired and wander off to find something else to entertain them for the day. And Vincent can fully concentrate on his painting. As he works for a moment, he's able to lose himself in it in the stroke of the brush back and forth, in the colors and the lines emerging from the canvas. For just a time, he finds a distraction from the ache of loneliness inside of him. That empty loneliness that seems to be a constant companion these days, one that he can never fully get rid of, even when he's painting. To the field and sky, he adds the dark forms of crows, symbol of death. It will be one of the very last paintings that he ever creates. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Any of you heard that before? Maybe sung it, I know as a kid I did. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But if you ask anybody who's lived long enough, they'll tell you that it's a complete lie. Words can hurt, and the wounds and scars that they leave can be just as deep 
and visible as a physical wound. Words have power. Power to alienate, to isolate, to tear down a person. But power too, to build up, to empower, to create. We'll come back to the story of Vincent a little bit later in the message. But for now, we're gonna open up God's word and see what he has to say to us this morning from the book of John 1. Before we read our text today, let's open in prayer. Gracious God, in Isaiah 55 you say, as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it blood and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God, this morning we are eager for you to speak to us through your word. Be at work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit so that your word will accomplish in us what you desire. As we reflect on John chapter one, we pray this in Jesus' name, the living word of God, amen. This Advent, we're gonna be spending some time doing a deep dive into the first 14 verses of John's gospel. It's a bit of a different take on the Christmas story. John's description of of Christ's entrance into the world is remarkably different than that of the other gospel writers. If you take a look at Matthew, you find a genealogy showing how Jesus is connected with the past and the royal line of David. Mark starts with Jesus' baptism and entry into ministry. Luke begins with Jesus' conception and birth. But in John, there are no shepherds and angels. There are no wise men traveling from afar to see the baby. John takes a a much broader, more theological approach to his gospel. He starts with who Jesus really is. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each of those gospel writers emphasize Jesus' humanity. John emphasizes his divinity. He introduces Jesus as the Word, writing, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In the beginning. John intentionally begins his book with words that that take us back to the very beginning back to another book in the Bible. The very first one, actually, the book of Genesis. There we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light and there was light. There in the beginning of time, God's word echoes with a transformation and creative power. Genesis describes how in its pre-created state, the earth was formless and empty. The words in Hebrew are, are tohu, unformed, formless, and bohu, empty, unfilled. Tohu is used elsewhere in the Bible to describe physically a wasteland or wilderness, emptiness, chaos, and metaphorically to describe things that are futile, meaningless, purposelessness. 
The earth is an empty place, an unproductive place, an uninhabitable place. And darkness is over the surface of the deep. The image is, is of a dark abyss, uninhabitable to life. And in the midst of that chaos, God speaks. With God's word, he creates. And suddenly, that unfilled, empty place is transformed. Out of disorder and chaos emerges something beautiful as God creates. First in broad strokes, separating light and dark, day and night, earth and sky, sea and land. And then in intricate details as each blade of grass is formed. God's word has the power to transform reality to bring possibility where there was impossibility, to bring light to the darkness, to bring life where there was nothing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. As John takes us back to the beginning of the creation of the world, he shows us how Jesus, the word, is present. There, at the beginning. As God spoke the world into being, as the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters, the breath of God, ready to breathe life into creation, there he was, Jesus, before he was a baby in the manger on Christmas, was a part of the ordering of the tohu and the bohu, the formlessness and the emptiness of the pre-created world into a habitable planet teeming with breathtaking diversity of life. He was with God in the beginning. He was God in the beginning. It starts to get a bit mind-boggling as you try to really think it all through and sort it out. Who exactly is creating? Is that God the Father speaking? And what about Jesus, and what exactly is the Holy Spirit doing? How do they work all together in this creation? And as we, we try to think through it and try to understand how all these things work together, we find ourselves wrestling with one of the great mysteries of Christian theology, one of the wonders of it, the Trinity. The idea that there are, are three persons and yet one God. For centuries, Christians have wrestled with the concept of the Trinity, Every analogy and explanation seems to fall short somehow because a great mystery is that all three persons are fully in one another. And yet, each of the three persons is distinct. In some ways, it's a paradox beyond human understanding. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. And yet, you cannot have one without the other. Each person of the Trinity is in full possession of the entire divine essence. As the early theologian Augustine wrote, each are in all, and all are in each, and all are one. The persons of the Trinity are, are forever with one another, yet without merging, blending, or confusion. Three persons, one God. As, as the early Greek Christians tried to make sense of the, of the Trinity and understanding how we can have one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they used the word perichoresis, 
It's the same root word that we get our word choreography from. And it literally means to dance or flow around. In his book, Engaging God's World, Cornelius Plantinga, a more contemporary theologian, describes it this way. At the center of the universe, self-giving love is the dynamic currency of the Trinitarian life of God. When early Greek Christians spoke of perichoresis in God, they meant that each divine person harbors the others at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. It's a beautiful picture of God relating in perfect community with himself. Creation flows out of that place of goodness. God doesn't create because he's lonely or because he needs creation. He creates out of the fullness of himself. Plantinga goes on to to write, to speak plainly from eternity, God has had a communal life and didn't need to create a world to get one. Nothing internal or external to God compelled him to create. Creation was neither a necessity nor an accident. Instead, given God's interior life that overflows with regard for others, we might say that creation is an act that was fitting for God. Genesis 1 paints this beautiful picture of creation, community, goodness, and flourishing. God, the master artist, has spoken and begun an epic masterpiece. Then at the end of Genesis 1, God creates us, human beings, in his image, to to care for the rest of all that he's created, to nurture it and to continue in the creative work that he has begun. As we explore and unpack and discover all of creation's potential. But humanity fails and things go terribly wrong. All across the canvas of God's beautiful masterpiece, dark smudges begin to appear. Ugliness marring the beauty of what could have been. Tohu and bohu, formlessness and emptiness reemerge, and once again there's darkness and chaos in our world today. We don't have to look far around us to see examples of that in our world. Places of tohu and bohu, formlessness, emptiness, places of darkness, places where things aren't as they should be. I started this sermon this morning with a story about a painter named Vincent. It's a man whose name you might recognize if I add in his last name, Vincent van Gogh, also pronounced van Gogh or van Gogh, but we're going to go with van Gogh for this sermon series, which is the American pronunciation. He, is, would have, he was going to become one of the most influential painters in art history. His paintings are among some of the most expensive ever sold. And yet during his lifetime, he was considered a bit of a madman and a failure. He struggled deeply with his mental health, experiencing psychotic episodes and time spent in um, psychiatric hospitals, and tragically, he died by suicide at the age of just 37, before he'd sold any of his paintings. In so many of his paintings, Van Gogh captured the beauty 
of this world. But he also experienced firsthand that the world is not the way it should be. I scroll through my newsfeed and I see stories of, of shootings in nightclubs, of fires in overcrowded factories taking too many young lives, of gangs controlling the streets of Haiti. This is not how it should be. I pray for people going through cancer treatments, grieving the loss of children, struggling to process abuse endured at the hands of someone they trusted. This is not how it should be. We hold the beauty and the brokenness of the world in tension as we wait, as we cry out for God to do something, to hear us, to save us. And God, in his grace, answers. We've made a mess of the world in our selfishness, our short-sightedness, complacency, and greed. We intentionally and unintentionally participate in, in systems that exploit the creation we're called to steward and that exploit each other. Would anyone blame God if he just got rid of this whole world and started over? looked at the mess of dark smudges marring his masterpiece, shook his head, chalked it up as a failed experiment and burned it all, then started off with a nice fresh canvas full of potential ready to start again. But God doesn't do that. When I was a child learning to draw, there were times when I would get frustrated. I would draw something and the head would be too big for the person, the arm would stick out at the wrong angle and I'd want to just get rid of it and throw it out. But I'll never forget my mom's encouragement. She would tell me to incorporate my mistakes within the picture I was creating. Look, see, you can shade a little here and make the body bigger. Now it fits with the head. That, that crooked arm sticking out at the wrong angle, what if we make that into a cape? And suddenly, the mistakes became part of the creation. I think that's a helpful analogy for redemption. As the story of the Bible unfolds, we find story after story of how God has not given up on his world or his creation. He still sees the potential. And he's even able somehow to work through those smudges and messes that, that we make of his plan and incorporate them in. God doesn't throw out the canvas and start all over with the world. Even in Genesis, when there's a great flood and much of the world is destroyed, God preserves Noah, his family, and the animals. There's continuity. And when he's frustrated with the people of Israel, his chosen people, he still doesn't get rid of them and start over with Moses. He continues to keep his promises, to be faithful. And when we look at the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, there we get an image of the, the new heavens and the new earth that God is creating. And in them we see elements of the old heavens and the old earth. We see the fingerprints of humanity on them as the Garden of Eden is transformed into a city, beautiful and diverse. God is in the business of redeeming and restoring his creation. And that's what we witness firsthand in John's gospel. 
One commentator I read pointed out the beauty of John going back to the beginning of creation because John is a gospel that will record the recreation of men and women. The light, the giving of life in darkness, hope where there's hopelessness. In the coming of Jesus, God's word is once again active, bringing creative life and new creation into the world. Here in the first few verses of John's gospel, John sets the scene for all that is about to unfold. With a word, Jesus will turn water into wine. With a word, he'll call people to follow him forever changing their lives. With a word, he will heal the sick, comfort the oppressed, and even raise the dead. And when it seems that darkness has won, that his life has been smudged out by death, as Jesus' body is pulled lifeless from the cross and placed in a tomb, even that can't ruin God's masterpiece because God's able to work through that to conquer death, to save the world. That body doesn't stay in that tomb. It rises back to life. And amazingly, even though humanity has failed over and over again, as we read the Bible, we read story of failure after failure, God continues to invite us to be a part of his unfolding story. He continues to hand the paintbrush to us and invite us to be part of the masterpiece that he's creating. God's spirit breathes new life and empowers Jesus' followers in Acts chapter two when the church is born. All who follow Jesus are empowered to be witnesses to his life, his death, and his resurrection, carriers of a story that has the power to continue to transform reality in our world today. The early church planter Paul wrote to a young church in Colossae, let the message, that is, the word of Christ, dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish each other with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. As we live our daily lives, in whatever we do, in our working, in our playing, in our socializing, we give testimony to that life-changing word of God. God continues to send us out as carriers of his word into places of tohu and bohu, places that are formless and empty, places that are dark in our world. He sends us out to carry his light into those places, to tell the story, to speak his life-giving words of, of hope to people who need to hear them. Whether it's through an illuminated Advent walk that shares the, the good news of hope, peace, joy, and love with our neighbors and community. Whether it's through a, a word of encouragement written to someone you know who's going through a hard time. Or whether it's through a phone call to check in on a friend you haven't seen in a while to say, how's it going? All of these become opportunities to speak life, to speak truth, to speak hope. Words have power, power to alienate, to isolate, to tear down, but also power to build up, to empower, and to create. And this Advent season, Hope Fellowship Church, 
My prayer is that as we wait for the day when God will fully redeem his creation, my prayer is that we would allow God to speak his life-giving word through us as individuals and as a community so that we can witness in a small way how God can work through ordinary, imperfect people to create a masterpiece. Let me end with the lyrics of one of my favorite songs. It's called Add to the Beauty by Sarah Groves. We come with beautiful secrets. We come with purposes written on our hearts, written on our souls. We come to every new morning with possibilities that only we can hold. Redemption comes in strange places, small spaces, calling out the best of who we are. And I wanna add to the beauty, to tell a better story. I wanna shine with the light that's burning up inside. It comes in small inspirations. It brings redemption to life and work. It comes in loving community. It comes in helping a soul find its worth. Redemption comes in strange places, small spaces, calling out the best of who we are. And I want to add to the beauty, to tell a better story, to shine with the light that's burning up inside. This is grace, an invitation to, be to be beautiful. This is grace, an invitation. Would you pray with me? Creator God, we thank you for the care with which you put together this world we live in. Thank you for the beauty of it, for the potential you've built into it. Thank you for, for butterflies and snowflakes and starlight and fireflies. Thank you, too, for not giving up on your creation when there was so much that is broken and not the way it should be in our world. Thank you for coming and, and stepping into that mess, for living among us in the person of Jesus, for making a way for this world to be redeemed, for all that is wrong to be made right. Thank you for your ongoing work in our lives. Continue to shape us and speak to us. Transform our hearts and our lives so we can give witness to Jesus in all that we say and all that we do. Using the words of Francis of Assisi, we pray that you would make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O oh, divine master, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love, for it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.